Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 42, please. Psalm 42. This is a hard psalm to understand. It's a bit of a, a conundrum. At least I had a bit of a conundrum anyways as I was studying it. And I spent a lot of time wrestling with this psalm and looking at a, a wide variety of study material on it. The material that I looked at was as wide in opinion and application as I was going into it, so it wasn't necessarily really helpful. I still don't feel like I've got this psalm down pat. However, I've been able to connect a few dots through it, and in the process of study, a few things were driven home for me, and I hope to share those things with you this morning. We have been working kind of randomly through some psalms, which is what has brought us to Psalm 42. One of the reasons that Psalm 42 is hard to have a clear and concise grasp of is because we aren't certain what this psalm is written about as far as a specific event or even of whom it is written. The introduction says in the New King James Version, To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. Now, to the chief musician makes sense to us. This is a song written for the people of Israel to sing. It was placed in the charge of the main worship leader. So for us, it would be uh, to Josh Vian, figure this song out, put it to music, and lead us in singing it. Or to Charles Marigny, figure this out, put it to music, lead us in singing it. Good luck. But then it goes on and says, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. Now, contemplation, or in some of your translations, it may say a mashkil, it means a didactic or an instructive psalm. So this psalm, or this song, was to be for the people's instruction. There was something that was to be learnt from this psalm, and something that was to be heeded in this psalm. There are many different types of songs within the Word of God, or psalms within the Word of God. There are songs of praise, and songs of confession, and songs of victory. Well, this is a song for instruction. That helps us a little bit. As we read through this psalm, we should be asking ourselves, what can I learn From this psalm, which is a good place to start anyways. But then it goes on and says, A contemplation of the sons of Korah. And we're just in the introduction so far. Of the sons of Korah. Now, if you're an Old Testament history buff, that should ring a bell for you. How many people does that ring a bell for? A few of you it rings a bell for? (laughs) Okay. If you remember the account of Korah, it's back in Numbers chapter 16. He was a Levite who wasn't content doing the job of the Levites, which was ministering in the temple. This is during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. He wanted to have the job of the priest, mainly sacrifice. So he and some of the other Levites, they incited 250 leaders of the congregation of Israel to challenge Moses and Aaron. And Moses calls them out on it. And for their uprising against God's chosen, God acts in judgment upon the family of Korah and those that he has incited to riot against Moses and Aaron. In Numbers chapter 16, verse 32, it says this, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. Number 26, verse 11, however, tells us that the sons of Korah did not die. Apparently, they separated themselves from the rebellion of Korah, and they were spared. Now, some 250 years later, we hear of the sons of Korah again. That, to me, is amazing, even if it's a minor sidetrack here. But God takes and redeems 
the remnant of this family, the same family who had challenged Moses and Aaron for the priesthood, and he uses them in the days of David as worship leaders in the tabernacle and then in the temple. In 1 Chronicle chapter 9, verse 19, it says, The sons of Korah were in charge of the work of the service, gatekeepers of the tabernacle. So in other words, they were organizers of their worship services. Uh, 1 Chronicles 9, verse 33 says, Of the sons of Korah, these are the singers, heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties, for they were employed in that work day and night. So these people... God took them and made them into a whole group of people who were worship leaders, who did nothing but write songs and play music and lead worship day and night. It says they didn't have any other job. Isn't that a wonder? Even in the introduction here, we see a commentary of God's grace. So next time you read a psalm and it says the sons of Korah, now you know who they are. So these men were the authors of this psalm. That, even though it's an incredible sidebar, leaves us with another dilemma. Who were they writing of or about? The Believer's Bible Commentary says this, and I paraphrase quite a bit here. It says, The sons of Korah wrote, in regards to Psalm 42, as the voice of David as he wandered in exile from his own son Absalom, or as the voice of the Messiah during his times of rejection and suffering, or as the voice of the Jewish remnant during the future tribulation period, or as the voice of the believer who looks back on the days of his first love and longs for the renewal of that kind of fellowship with the Lord, continues and says that all of these are legitimate applications and that that is the versatility of the Psalms, which is great, but what is it? Which one is it? Who is the voice that we hear in this Psalm? Because if we don't know who the voice is, we have a harder time understanding it. Certainly there are prophetic utterances about Christ within the psalm, as there were in Psalm 40, which we looked at two weeks ago. But this isn't all prophetic. I am inclined to believe that originally this psalm was written in the voice of David by the sons of Korah. In other words, the sons of Korah were professional musicians who wrote this as an expression of the experience of David. It is likely about David's time of exile from Jerusalem when he is running for his life from his own son Absalom. Though we must wonder if the experiences of those songwriters, the sons of Korah, filtered into the psalm as well. But in style and in mood and in the common use of words and phrases, this psalm sounds like David to me. And not to be too hard on David, but there's one area that I particularly see him in this psalm. And that's that I think David suffered from what is now known as bipolar disorder. It's quite possible, actually. Many have said that. Bipolar used to be called manic depression. A person with this disorder has emotional swings from mania or manic to depression. They hit emotional states that are high and volatile. And then after that, they, they crash to a deep and dark melancholy. And this psalm seems to express that. As a matter of fact, I think that is actually what this psalm is about. The battle of the emotion and the will. The struggle between those highs and lows that we are all prone to one degree or another to face. With that perspective in mind, and and I hope that that perspective helps to understand the reading of Psalm 42. 
With that perspective in mind, I've titled this message, The Roller Coaster Ride of Faith. The Roller Coaster Ride of Faith. So we're going to read Psalm 42. And as we do so, see if this psalm doesn't express that struggle or tension between its two main points. The discouragement that is ever ready to crush us and God who is ever ready to lift us. Psalm 42. To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him the help of my countenance and my God. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. Did you get a sense of that emotional roller coaster that David experienced, assuming that this is in the voice of David? Look at the emotions that are expressed in this psalm. Desire, longing, sorrow, despair, joy, dejection, anguish, hope, Praise, overwhelmed, anticipation, encouragement, abandoned, forgotten, oppressed, broken, reviled, confidence, comforted. There are so many emotions in this psalm. To me, it says that he's speaking about emotions here. There's other things in there as well. But he's wrestling through this emotional roller coaster. Maybe you didn't pick up on that as I read it. I want to try to do something this morning that's a little different for me and is a little out of my comfort zone. I want to do what is called a dramatic reading of this psalm, or a theatrical reading of this psalm, but I'm going to be expressing it in my own words. By the time I'm done, some of you may want me to do all my readings like this, and some of you may pray that I never do it again. (laughs) But regardless, I'll be on holiday for the next week, so you have almost two weeks to recover from it. So please don't get distracted by me. But hear the rise and fall of this psalm. I've tried to align the sentiment that I'm expressing with the sentiment that is expressed in the passage, so you should be able to follow it. And remember, this is, this is my expressive take on a passage, but I'm not the original author, so it may have been intended to be taken differently, but I should stop apologizing and just do it. God, God, I want you. I need you. I long for you like a deer longs for water in the wilderness. You are my only thought and my only desire. Nothing else can satisfy. 
the very core of my being thirsts for you, O God. And not just any God, but the real and true and living God. I want to see you. I want to experience you and and know you and be filled with you. I want to look into your face, unhindered and unashamed. But instead of being satisfied with you, I am fed by my tears. Day in and day out, I can't stop crying. I am a wreck and a ruin. Nothing is right. Nothing quenches my longings. I am destroyed. I am broken. I am done. And in the middle of that rock bottom, curled up in fetal position, I find no help. Instead, everyone is mocking me and saying, where is this God you say you believe in? Where is he now? eh? Can't your God even fix your emotional state? It didn't used to be like this. I can think back and remember bright and sunny days. I used to bounce to church on Sunday mornings with a song in my heart and a smile on my lips. There was so much happiness and joy then. I knew your hand of provision and protection over me. Everything was well. Remember the way I used to sing and dance before you got? We had celebrations and parties and good times and life was so much fun. But now... Even remembering that just depresses me. The happiness of then makes the darkness I am in even darker. Come on, self, snap out of it. Why am I so down? Why does my life sound like one pathetic moan? Cheer up, come on, hope in God, look to God, trust God, he can fix us. I know that things will get better because God is so much bigger than my situation. The day is coming when I will look back on my sorrows and wonder how I ever could have gotten so low. One day I will be praising God and rejoicing in your saving grace. One day I'll be in your presence and nothing will get me down again. No, no, it's not that simple. All of the words in the world and all the resolve in me can't make me feel happy right now. It just isn't going to happen. Come on, think. What are you supposed to do when you're getting suppressed? Focus. Think about God. Okay, God, I'm focusing on you. I remember that you're still God and I'm not. You're the God of this land that I'm in. You established it. It's one dominion under God from sea to sea. Not just this country, but even the peace country and right down to little old Nampa. You are God. Even all of creation testifies to that. The roar of the rivers in their spring runoff this year echoed back and forth that you are God. Every crack of thunder in the summer storms declare that you are God. And all these wonders wash over me. And I am reminded that you are in control from the heights of my joys to the deepest valleys. Every day you pour out your love and your goodness upon me, your care for me. Even in the night, I still hear your whispering of that love to me. Okay, if you are that good to me, and since you are my only place of safety and security, then God, why do I feel so alone? Why don't I see you or sense your presence or hear from you? Why is my life so full of despair and and painful groanings? Why am I constantly under attack by those who hate you? I feel so beaten down and dejected, this constant mockery of my faith in you. is like a knife in my chest. It feels like something destroying me from the inside out. 
Constantly I hear that garbage, where's your God? What's wrong? God not big enough to fix that? Your imaginary God let you down again? Okay, self, stop thinking like that. Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, my Savior and God. Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, my Savior and God. Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I don't know whether that contemporized rendition of Psalm 42 brought any clarity for you, but if nothing else, prayerfully you were able to see the rise and fall of David emotionally, or whoever the author is, through this reading. This here is David, I believe, in exposed vulnerability, expressing his struggle. And it is harsh, and it is open, and he's, it's an exposing of his, of his pain and also of his joys. He is sharing quite vulnerably his roller coaster ride of faith. We see here in this passage that discouragement is ever ready to crush us. And I think we know that in our own lives as well. And I'm not going to focus on that. You could have, I hope you picked up on that. He talks about some of that discouragement. Discouragement is ever ready to crush us to one degree or another. Regardless of how stable you think you are or how stable you actually are, we are prone to discouragement, aren't we, at times? The other half of this psalm, though, is about the fact that God is ever ready to lift us. And it's not as if it goes, the first half is discouragement and the second half is encouragement. It's almost like verse to verse, we see that cycle of a high and a low and a high and a low and a high and a low all the way through this. So I want to focus on what it is that can lift us out of that discouragement. If that discouragement is ever ready to crush us in half of this, and the other half is about God being ready to lift us, what can lift us? How does God lift us, or what does he use to lift us out of that discouragement? If this psalm expresses that God is ever ready to lift us, what does that look like? Or put another way, what are some keys that David exposes to lift us out of despair? I see within this psalm at least, I'll call them implements, three implements or tools of encouragement. The first is an appetite for God in verse 1 to 4. The second is resolve for God in verse 5 and 11, because those are the same, and in verse 6. And the third is hope in God in verse 5 and 11 and verse 8. God is ever ready to lift us. Implement of encouragement number one is an appetite for God. We see that in verse 1 to 4. Look at the longing that is expressed in the beginning of this passage. It is a longing to know God and experience God. It is a thirsting for God, the true and living God. This is not some passing fancy, but a passion to be near to God. A passion to, to know and to be known by God. The expression in this verse, in verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God in the New King James, literally means when shall I see the face of God. David wanted to be that close to God. Face to face. 
Then David goes on in verse 5 and recounts the former joy of sweet communion with God. He recalls how it was a joy and a delight to be in the presence of God and to worship and to celebrate God in the fellowship of other believers. He desired God. Is that you today? I must admit that when I first began preparing this message, I was stopped dead in my tracks right there in verse 1 and 2. Because all too often, that isn't me. As the deer pants for a water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. It wasn't me, but I want it to be me. That's probably a good place to start, isn't it? We all must admit that often, God is not our first desire. And if and if He is up there near the top of our desires, we don't long for Him with an unquenchable appetite. We don't want Him more than we want food or water or any other myriad of uh, desires, do we? Do we long for God? To go back one step, do we want to want God? Do we want to long for God? That's, That's where I have to start. Because the psalmist doesn't give us a plan to get us to the point of longing for God. That's not included here. And I don't know if there is such a plan apart from one thing. Ask God to give you a desire for Him. Ask God to give you a desire, a longing for Him. Want to want Him? Then ask God to cause you to want Him. Don't wait until He drives you to your knees in brokenness and desperation. Rather, ask Him to cause you to desire Him and to long for Him now. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever stage of this roller coaster ride of faith that you're on, this is crucial. This, verse 1 and 2, for some of us, is where the message actually needs to stop. This is a point we shouldn't get past until we are driven from the empty things that so easily and cheaply satisfy us to the place of absolute head-over-heels love for God and a passionate seeking of Him. And so cry out to God now, Lord, give me a longing for you like I have never known or experienced. And then, Lord, satisfy that longing with yourself. God is ever able to lift us. But for that to happen, we must have an appetite for God. Not just for His cure, but for Him. And then we must trust Him to give us that appetite and to satisfy that appetite. If you're unable to be there, then don't worry about point number two and number three, okay? You can spend the rest of the time that we're here just talking to God and asking Him to give you a desire for Him, to give you a longing for Him. But point number two, because I must go on. Sorry, point number one, God is ever able to lift us. The first implement of encouragement is an appetite for God. The second implement of encouragement is a resolve for God. In verse 5 and 11, we have the same thought expressed, not just in the questioning of why I'm in this mood, which he does, but in what must be done to rise above that. It says in the New King James Version, this is his response to why am I just so discouraged? Why am I so cast down? He says, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. I want to deal with that hope part in the third point. That's the third implement. But even in that expression there, we have resolve. He asks himself this question, why am I so discouraged? And then he says, hope in God. There's there's resolve there. There's determination. At least I see there being determination there. And it is a determination to turn to God. 
It is a determination to trust in God. This is an act of the will to turn from that which has brought me down to the only one who can lift me up. It's an act of resolve. We have all been, I think, in that place of discouragement and depression, regardless of whether it's been light or severe. And we all recognize that if we don't act with determination and resolve, then we'll continue there. It takes some guts to say, no, I am not going to think this depressive way anymore, to say, enough, stop, change, refocus. It takes resolve. It's necessary. And we know that there is power in that as well, don't we? I'm not saying that resolve alone is going to do the trick, but we recognize that we need at times to begin to talk ourselves out of the moods that we're in or the attitudes that we have. And what do you say to yourself? Or what you say to yourself has effect. If you say, poor, poor, pitiful me, then you're probably just going to continue to wallow in your own misery. But when you say, self, turn to God, I will rise out of this. I will think on Him. Then you begin to fuel that spark. You begin to feed your resolve. And I think that's what the psalmist does here in verse 6 as well. Once again, the roller coaster ride, right? He says, he has just talked about God being the help of his countenance. And it goes on in verse 6. There is such a transition between verse 5 and 6. The end of verse 5, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Oh, my soul! Or, oh my God, my soul is cast down within me, high and low. But we see here that he says right after that, he says, Therefore I will remember you. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I resolve, I am determined to not be focusing on that, but to focus on you. I will remember your presence. I will remember your ministry I will remember the work that, you're ha- that you have done. He doesn't say, oh, oh my God, my soul is cast down within me, so I'm going to sit and wallow. I'm going to enjoy my misery. I'm going to play the victim. No, he doesn't do that. He says, I will remember your presence, your power, your ministry, your loving kindness. He goes on a little bit later. In the daytime and the night, his song shall be with me. That is resolve. Resolve for God. That is determination to consider him and recognize him and trust in him. And, and please... Don't think that I'm telling you you can do this by pulling up your own bootstraps. It doesn't work that way. But that this resolve is still instrumental. It is a key part in God lifting us up. And that, to me, is, is quite profound. My resolve is a key part in God lifting me up. Your resolve to say, I'm not going to live there. I'm not going to stay there right now. God is ever able to lift us up. The first implement of encouragement is an appetite for God. The second is a resolve for God. And the third is hope in God. We see that in verse 5 and 11 and in verse 8. 5 and 11, once again, same or similar verses. They both use the word hope. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. Now, the word hope that is used there, it means to wait in expectation. It isn't the way that we use hope today. It doesn't mean that we're hoping that it doesn't rain or we're hoping to win the lottery. This is a word of confident expectation, similar to what we have in the New Testament when it speaks about hope. This is a certainty based upon the character of God upon which we must wait. 
It's a confident expectation. We could render it trust in God. Or when he says hope in God, we could render it have confidence in God. And as we place our confident expectation in the unchanging, unfailing God that we know, we can rest in him, knowing that I shall yet praise him for the help, says, of my countenance. The NIV actually says, I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And that's actually a better translation. The word translated help in the New King James and Savior in the NIV, is, it's the same word. It actually comes from, this is just an interesting side note, it comes from the word Yeshua. Do you recognize that? Yeshua. That name or title when the angel Gabriel spoke to uh, Joseph about the pregnancy of Mary. Gabriel tells Joseph, she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name, we say Jesus, Yeshua. You shall call his name Savior because he shall save his people from their sins. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Same word that is used, Yeshua, salvation, deliverance. The NIV has it right when it says, put your hope in God, I will yet praise him, my Savior. Now that isn't saying the the New King James is wrong. The psalmist wasn't likely looking forward prophetically, at least not consciously, to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is looking for help in God or salvation in God. The psalmist is saying, I will hope in God for he will help me. He will deliver me. He will save me. We can have confident expectation in God, in Jesus Christ. We can have hope in him for he is our only deliverer whether we're speaking about deliverance from the snares of sin or the despair of our soul, our only hope truly is in Him. He is still the God who rescues and saves sinners. He is still the God who secures you physically, spiritually, and even emotionally. He is the God who saves. Hope in God. So those are three keys this morning. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you even think that you're on a roller coaster ride. Perhaps your life has been stable and unruffled. Nothing to see here, just a study level, calm life. Perhaps you're on the other side of the spectrum. You're not even on the roller coaster ride anymore because you've went off the tracks. You've crashed and burnt. You're sitting over there in the ditch. But wherever you are today or wherever you may be tomorrow, discouragement is ever ready to crush you, and God is ever ready to lift you. You want to be lifted up? Do you need to know that when you hit those scary heights or gut-wrenching drops or the deep, dark valleys, there is someone there who can intervene, someone there who can rescue you? Well, there is. God is able. He is more than able, and he has revealed through the experience of this psalmist some implements of encouragement. Develop an appetite for God through prayer. Commit yourself to turn to God. That is resolve. That is an act of the will. And then trust in Him, hope in Him, for you shall yet praise Him, your Savior and your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for the the words that are recorded in the Old Testament uh, so beautifully and powerfully put. And yet how exposed and how vulnerable it seems as well to 
to speak of those highs and lows emotionally and the journey in the ascent and descent of them, Lord, it's, it's amazing to me. It's, it shows that you had your hand in your word because we wouldn't be inclined to write this about ourselves, to express this, to admit this at times even about ourselves. And yet we can look back on these experiences and we can, we can find comfort, not just in that somebody else went through them, but that there was resolve for them. There was, there was an answer to it that that is found in you. We thank you that you created us the way we are, even with these, at times we feel like uncontrollable emotions, but that in life itself there are rises and falls. And in and of themselves, to be happy or to be sad is not necessarily wrong. But we thank you that by your Holy Spirit you have given us the fruit of the Spirit, and one of them being the fruit of self-control, that we are to regulate and to monitor them. And we don't do that on our own, but we do it through your enabling. We thank you that you have equipped us. You have given us these tools that are necessary. And I pray that we would seek out other tools within your word as well, but that we would, we would turn to these three tools that have been given today, especially that first one, an appetite for God. And that we would realize we are never going to have stability or have growth or have maturity in our life, not spiritually speaking at least, and definitely not emotionally, until we have a desire for you. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would grant us a greater desire for you, that we would long for you as has been expressed here, as a deer in a wilderness, longing, panting, the King James says, for water, that we would long for you, we would, we would pant after, follow after, and seek you. And we know that as we seek you, we will find you, for you have promised that. And so, Lord, we delight in that, that you are the God who places the desire within our heart, and you are the God who satisfies that desire. So for that goodness, Lord, we give you thanks. We submit ourselves to you, Lord. We ask that you would accomplish in us and through us all that you desire, all that you will, and that it would be expressed and lived in such a way as to give glory and honor and praise to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.